All right, good morning. Welcome, welcome. Go ahead and be turning to 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 2, uh, specifically in verses 7 through 11 this morning. So head that way. And as you turn there, I'd like to know who here has a favorite subject in school? Does anyone have, like, I have a favorite, okay. Uh, how many people is that favorite subject history? History or social studies? Okay, one or two? All right, all right. Uh, art? We got a favorite art? Favorite subject, lunch? There's, yes, let's go! Yeah, there's always a few whose favorite subject in school is lunch. Uh, I was one of those kids whose favorite subject in school was definitely lunch, period. Uh, or, it's also true to say this one was also my favorite subject. How many people... Favorite subject, math. Wow. Wow, I'm shocked. I I really am shocked. Usually I'd be like, oh, wow, the whole crowd has their hands up, and I'd be lying to everyone listening to the recording. But no, there's actually a few people who like math here. That's awesome. Uh, You know, I I, I do love math. One of the many degrees I pursued and failed to get was math education. Uh, And it's as an extremely logical man, this kind of spoke to my heart. You know, when I would do an English essay, They'd be like, I don't like your point. You wrote it well. It's grammatically correct. It's all spelled correctly. But I don't like your point, so I'm giving you a D. And I'm like, fine. But with math, you sit down, and one plus one, it's always two. And you never have to worry about the teacher not liking the fact that one and one is two. And one of the things I especially enjoyed in college was I took a course called the Foundations of Elementary Mathematics, or Elementary Foundations of Math. And I really like this because instead of doing any math in the class, what we did is we looked at the logical theorems, the ideas behind math concepts. So if I were to say two is number, or an even number is any number that is divisible by two with no remainders. Okay, awesome. That's how we know it's even. Well, then by that definition, I go on to say, well, any odd number is any number that's dividable by two with a remainder. And by definition, it's going to be a remainder of one. So when you add two odd numbers, they both have a remainder of one. One and one is two. Congratulations. We're back to an even. Every odd equals an even. This stuff, I love it. You just build all the logical blocks together. And of course, I I found a personal level of humor that in this high-level math course, I did zero math. That that just appealed to uh, the the quirkiness of me. Uh, but, But we kind of build up these logical statements doing things like, if this is true then this must also be true. So, for example, if I have an apple, then I have a fruit. Or if I give Brandon broccoli, he's not going to eat it. Like, these these are fundamental truths. Like, if the first part of the sentence is true, then the second part of the sentence will also be true. And in 1 John so far, John has given us three tests for the Christian life where he basically says, if you are indeed a believer, then Christ working in you will produce a certain mindset or a certain action in your life. And who can tell me what is one of the three tests that we've gone over up to now? Is We've gone over three tests that you can use for whether or not you are a believer. Yeah, William, what's one of them? The evidence of salvation can you get a little more specific because you're right. These are all evidences of salvation. Yes, you're on the right track. So it, it seems like if you are a believer, then you will have a biblical view of what? Of the Bible, certainly true. Okay, I'll help you out. There, there are three that we went over. And the first one we went over was, if you're a believer, then you're going to have a biblical view of who Christ is. That is, he is 100% God, and he is 100% man. That becoming man didn't mean that he took off his godness. It is that he added to his godness our divinity. Or not our divinity, excuse me, our humanity. The second one is that we need to have a biblical view of sin, as William was saying. That God is perfect, he is holy and righteous, and we are not. And because he is perfect and we are not living up to his perfect standard, we are not adhering to his holiness, then we needed a sacrifice. We needed something to purchase our forgiveness that we could not do ourselves. And that person was Christ, his substitutionary death on the cross for us. 
And the third one was that if you are a Christian, then you will keep God's commandments. You're not going to be perfect, but our lives are going to be marked by growing patterns of obedience. That anyone who claims to be a doulos, a slave of Christ, is going to obey their master. Because that's what it comes down to, right? We're, we're a slave of something. And we're going to be obeying our master. Neither our master is sin, and we're going to be a slave to sin, and we're going to be obeying the call of sin as a constant pattern of our lives, or we are a slave of God, and we are going to be obeying God as a constant pattern of our lives. These were the three tests that John has given us so far, and I want you to know something about these tests. Each one of them is building up off the last one. You know, for example, a person isn't just going to sit around going, you know what? I'm a sinner. Whoa, I'm a sinner. It's not that I believe that God's holy. It's not that I believe that Christ came for my sins. It's that I, I believe out of nowhere I'm a sinner. Like, that's, that's not what's going to happen. It is the very process of recognizing that God is perfect and holy that comes, that, that brings us to the point where we go, I'm not. I am failing to live the life of holiness that God required for me. Therefore, I'm a sinner. Therefore, I need Christ. Like, each one of these builds up on top of the next one. If you are a Christian— then you will have a biblical view of God's holiness and of your sinfulness because it is God making you receptive to this very knowledge that draws you to himself. And if you're a Christian, then you are God's slave, his doulos, and you will obey your master's commands. If you're going to obey God's commands, there's one more thing that we're going to go over this morning. So, hey, we've, we've gone over these first three ones, but now there's something else. If you are going to obey God's command, then there's one command in particular that John wants to draw your attention to. He wants to encourage your obedience toward, and that command is to have a biblical view of love. So let's go ahead and read our passage. This is 1 John 2, verses 7 through 11. It says, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So the title for this morning's lesson, if you're taking notes, is going to be The Love That God Requires. The theme we're going to see across these four verses is that if you are in Christ, then you will love as Christ taught us to love. If you are in Christ, then you will love as Christ taught us to love. So for our outline, we're going to do it in three parts because that's what we usually do, and these passages just nicely divide up that way. But for the first part, we're going to look at the old yet new commandment. That's verses 7 and 8. Then we're going to look at the negative commandment. That's going to be in verse 9. And finally, we're going to be looking at the consequences of the commandment in verses 10 and 11. I'll give you all a second. I, I know I don't have a PowerPoint this morning. I, I dropped the ball, sorry. Uh, but again, that's going to be the old yet new commandment. That's verses 7 to 8. The negative commandment in verse 9. And finally, the consequences of the commandment in verses 10 and 11. So let's look at verse 7 in detail as John tells us about this old and yet somehow at the same time new commandment. And to do that, I want someone to tell me, what's the very first word of verse 7? Like, if you're an NIV, it's the first two words. But for the rest of us, it's, it's going to be one word. What's the first word of verse 7? If you have a Bible, just look down and shout it out. Beloved. beloved. Excellent, beloved. Or dear friends, if you're using an IV. Why is John calling these people dear friends or beloved? Who's he writing to? Toby, I saw your hand move. I'm going to count that as a hand raise. Who's John writing to? Who are the beloved? Christians, exactly. <laughs> He's writing to people he believes Christians. These are people that are beloved to him, that he cherishes. Remember that the New Testament church at this point in time is barely like 60 years old. So we're, we're getting into the second generation of believers. There's still people who were alive that saw Jesus, i.e. John, the person writing this epistle, 
But then we also have a group of people who were born after Jesus' death and resurrection. And they're, they're born, you know, maybe 50 years, and, and they're hearing these letters for the first time. And so we got these two generations working together, and as we are, we're coming into the second generation, we're writing to address some bad theology that was starting to grow within the church. Some groups were trying to downplay Christ's divinity. Other groups were trying to downplay his humanity. And there's actually a third group that, if we read 3 John, we'll get to. And this group wanted nothing to do with anyone. Like, they're basically the first cult uh, recorded in the Bible. The first people who claimed to be Christians and yet were a complete cult. Uh, they, they said, you know what? You're not even allowed to talk to other people in the church. We're going to have complete control over everything going on right here. And John is driven by love for his fellow believers to reach out to them, reminding them of the teachings they had received from the 12 disciples and ultimately from God himself, in the hopes that when confronted, they're going to lay aside their false beliefs for sound biblical doctrine and return to a proper fellowship with other believers and with God. Like, this is John's full expectation of what's going to happen. He is believing that I am going to talk to a believer, and that believer is going to respond to the gospel because that's what believers do. So he writes, Beloved, my fellow believers that I love and cherish, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. And I'm going to spoil this for a bit, because we need to know what the commandment he's talking about. Uh, The the commandment he's talking about is love. We'll get to that in verse 9, but he kind of goes back and forth in verse uh, 7 and 8 here, talking about this old commandment, this new commandment. It's love. The commandment is to love one another's. And is the commandment to love one another a fairly old commandment? Yes, everyone nodded their head. Yes, absolutely it is. Like you go back to Genesis 4. In verses 6 through 12, we see that there's the conflict happening between Cain and Abel. And God's response, uh, and we see God's response to Cain's murder of his brother. And I I want you to look at verse 6 and 7, or I'll I'll read them to you. I usually have it up on the TV here. Uh, You can turn there if you want. It's pretty easy to get to the beginning of the Bible. But in Genesis 4, verse 6 and 7, God says to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? Have you ever seen one of your siblings when they're like this? I'm sure none of you have actually done this yourselves. But maybe you've seen one of your siblings where they don't get what they want. And it might be something small, like, I wanted my pants to be dry in the dryer and they're not right now. Okay. Completely random off the top of my head example. This is certainly not something that was happening to me this morning. But let's, let's use this example. I got the wrong pants, and their countenance falls. And, and it's not just that I'm upset. You see the anger on their face. And they're just walking, and they're so mad at you, Dad. I'm like, it's not my fault. <laughs> like, you handed me these wet pants. What do you want me to do? Cain had the same thing going on. His countenance was fallen. He was angry that his offering wasn't being accepted. And it wasn't being accepted because his brother had given a better one. It wasn't being accepted because his heart wasn't right with God. And instead of addressing that, he allows his countenance to fall, and God warns him. He says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Sin is crouching at the door. Has, has anyone read talking about me being old more. Has anyone read a comic strip, Calvin and Hobbes? Yes. Okay, excellent. Excellent. There, there's some people who are, are familiar with this. What happens whenever Calvin gets home from school and opens the door? What's that? Hobbes jumps at him. Yeah, his, his, his toy stuffed tiger pounces on him. And, and you know, Calvin goes splaying through the, the yard and now dust everywhere. This is what sin is like. Sin is like the tiger crouching at the door, and it's just ready to pounce on him the second he opens it. And God is warning Cain that your anger, if you let it sit there, is going to pounce on you. And of course, that is exactly what happens. Instead of addressing his sinful heart, because it was his own sin in the first place that was causing his offering not to be accepted, instead of addressing that, he allowed that anger for his brother, his countess, downcast countenance to fester and it turned into hatred and it turned into murder. 
Following Genesis, we see law after law given by God on how we are to love and respect one another. I mean, six out of ten of the Ten Commandments are all about how we as people are supposed to relate to other people. Things like don't steal, don't murder, don't be envious. Like, that's the odd one in the group, right? Like, we, we kind of get, I'm, not su- I'm supposed to honor my mother and father, okay. We get, I'm not supposed to kill Brandon as he walks out the door, okay. Yeah, yeah, murder, bad, I get it. Theft, uh-uh, okay, yeah, lying, okay, I get that one too. And then don't be envious. Don't be envious. Like, like you would think of all the ones listed, we can see how it impacts the people around us when we sin that way. When I lie about someone, we can see how that impacts them. We can see it damages their reputation. We can see it gets them in trouble. But we get the envious and we're like, well, how is, how is this one really causing any problems? Well, it's causing problems because we're not loving them. And we can go through the Levitical law and we can examine how God establishes law after law that was centered around serving God and loving and respecting our fellow man. But all that would just highlight this one statement from John. The commandment to love one another is an old commandment. It's something we've had from the very, very beginning. But why does it matter that they've heard it from the beginning? Like, why is John making such a big deal about the fact that it's from the beginning. I mean, he's really emphasizing this. Four times in this verse, he says, it's an old commandment. It's not a new one, it's an old one. You've had it from the beginning, it's an old commandment. What do you think? They've had it for thousands of years, so they should be obeying it. Uh, That's certainly part of it. He's like, hey, guys, (laughs) you should know this by now. Uh, But there's also another, another part, and what's going on here is, you know, it's possible or even probable based on what we see in 3 John 10 when these people separate away from the church and they say, have nothing to do with these people at all. Don't even listen to them. It seems what was going on here is that they were trying to teach that John was coming in and teaching these crazy new beliefs. That this New Testament church, it had nothing to do with Judaism. It was just this crazy thing where you, you ate this guy's body and you drank his blood and there's all these new laws, all these new rules. And John is directly combating that. And he's saying, this isn't something new. I'm not teaching something out of left field that you never heard before. This is an established old commandment that you should be doing, as Ian said. And then... The next verse, I love this next verse. Like he's like, okay, it's an old commandment. It's an old commandment. It's an old commandment. Oh, by the way, it's actually a new one. And, and you can almost feel the, I'm sorry, what? Which way are we going here, John? Is this an old commandment? Is this a new commandment? I just got a little whiplash from trying to follow your train of thought. And I think that's exactly what John's going for in the way he worded this. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he wrote this out specifically to get people to stop and pay attention. You know, this is something that at the first glance, it seems to be overwhelmingly contradictory. contradictory. You can't have something be old and new at the same time. But there's a fun literary, literary word for what John's doing. And the word is juxtaposition. This is, this is a fun one. It's where you take two completely opposite ideas and you put them next to each other to highlight the contrast between them. Uh, for example... Do I have any poetry, poetry fans here? Maybe a few poetry. Anyone familiar with, with T.S. Eliot? Famous poet? Thank you, Nikki. Okay, so there's a very famous poem that T.S. Eliot wrote called The Wasteland. And he's describing the way that l- everything springs back to life in spring. And one of the sentences he writes in it is he talks about how the dead ground breeds forth lilacs or lilacs breeding out of the dead land. And then he talks about how these lilac bulbs spend all winter long buried underground being kept warm by winter. So these are opposing ideas, right? It's you got the dead ground and you got life coming out of it. Death and life, opposing ideas. You have winter, something is very well known for being not warm, but being cold. And yet he describes it as the the winter blanket of snow keeping the bulbs warm until the right time for them to grow. In the same way, John is 
juxtaposing, that he's, he's contrasting these two different ideas for the singular commandment to love one another. And we're going to get to this in verse 9 about how we are to love one another, uh, but it is something that's both incredibly old, as John says, and it's something that's almost brand new. He's doing that to get us to double, do a double take and think about this. He wants us to think about why the commandment to love one another, something that is very old, as we've seen. All the Old Testament, it talks about love, the way people fail to love one another, the consequences of the, what happened when they fail to love one another. He wants us to think, why would this be new? What about it is new? And the answer is, it's new again because we live on this side of the cross. You know, Christ did so much during his time, his earthly ministry on earth, right? He healed the sick. He drove out demons. He taught us personally. That is, he taught humanity personally. I mean, we, we get it through the Bible. He, he actually sat and he talked with people for hours and hours and years about what the Old Testament really meant. He opened the eyes of the blind. He made the legs of the lame walk. And of course, above all, I mean, what's the number one thing Christ did on earth? He died. died. Yeah, the number one thing. He died for our sins. I mean, the things Christ did while here are amazing. But one of the things I know that I personally tend to skip over, I don't know if this is the same way for you, but I skip over the, the fact that we see in his life demonstrated exactly what God meant when he gave the Old Testament law. Like when God said, I want you to love your neighbor, we kind of got some funky ideas happening. We're like, well, when he says love your neighbor, he must have meant this. Or when he said, uh, don't commit adultery, he must have meant that. And then we see Jesus comes along, uh, and we see this especially in Matthew 5. This is the, the Sermon on the Mount, and he's giving the Beatitudes. Uh, and after that, we see five times Jesus directly confronted these false ideas they had, where he said, hey, you've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. You have heard it said you shan't commit murder, but I say to you, anyone who has anger in his heart for his brother has already committed murder. Five times Jesus says, you think you're living a life of righteousness. No. Let me explain just how far you've missed the mark. You have taken a cheap imitation of God's standard and adhered to that instead of adhering to God's standard itself. And then Christ perfectly lived out what God requires from each and every one of us. Like this is an amazing example, and I kind of I gloss over that that we see Christ living out how we should live and the full depths of what that means. And we see this example really displayed in the context of this passage, what it means to love one another and what it means to have this old yet new commandment in John 13, 34 through 35. Uh, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And that's not the new part. We've already established. That's an old commandment. The new part is that he says that you love one another even as I have loved you. That's why this is a new commandment. It's new because in Christ, we now have the perfect example of what God meant when he said, love one another as yourselves. Because we live on this side of the cross, we can look back and see how Jesus demonstrated for us how we are, or just how far we are to go with our love for one another. And it's new also just because we aren't just so in general love one another, but specifically as I love you, so you are to love one another. What is the extent that Jesus went to with his love for one another? Yes. He died for us. Yeah, easy Sunday school question. I, w- I wasn't going, I wasn't trying to trick you on this one. This was the easy one, guys. He died for us. Uh, 
take that too lightly sometimes. I, I want you to think about this verse in Romans 5.8. It says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I know for me, it's very easy for me to get in this very narrow mindset about this verse. That I go, yeah, okay, I was a sinner. I didn't do what God wanted. Like, that's kind of where, where my mind stops. It says that Christ died for sinners, and I go, okay, sin meaning I, I'm not doing what God wants me to do. I was doing sinful things. But I want you to really think about what it means when it says that we were sinners. I want you to do that by thinking about the larger context of what was going on in John 13, where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I loved you. What was going on? What was going on is that this is the Last Supper. Jesus had set his garments aside. I mean, think about this. The creator of the universe takes off his outer garments. He's just in his, his undergarments. And he gets down on his hands and knees and he washes the disciples' feet. The creator of the universe acting as a humble servant. The most basic of servants. And then after he gets done with this, he's having his meal and he says, Judas, go and do what you have said in your heart to do. And what had Judas said in his heart to do? Nico. Betray him, yeah. He said in his heart to betray Jesus. And so Jesus, getting ready to bear the wrath of God for my sins, and he, he knew that he'd bear them, and I'd come to faith, and I'd go, wow, God, I haven't met your standard. I'm a sinner. I need your salvation. And then I'd turn around, and I'd go back to my sin. And Jesus died for me anyway, knowing that I would be imperfect in my obedience to him. And with all this in mind, Jesus tells them, love one another as I am loving you. Like, like think about that, guys. This isn't just some, oh, I died for sinners. No, Jesus died for people who hated him. We were all in rebellion to Christ before we came to him. Like, by the grace of God, there's a lot of people in this room who came to know him at a young age. But I understand, even if you came to Christ when you were five, you were in rebellion to Christ before then. Like, like it's the grace of God that your ability to rebel against him is very limited when you're five. But any parent in here can tell you, yeah, but before my children come to know Christ, it's tough. There's a difference in attitude and yeah, you know what? My, my five-year-olds, they will rebel against God to the full extent of their little five-year-old body. And in the midst of that, Jesus says, love as I have loved you. Well, verse 8 continues. And this is the reason why I, I really like this verse. I think it's an amazing verse for believers. After reminding the reader that in Christ's example, we have a new understanding of this old commandment to love one another, John goes on to say the commandment to love one another is true, it's true in Christ and it's true in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. John is expressing his full belief that those who are receiving his letter will come back to a biblical view. And this is why I love it. Because the truth of the matter is that as Christians, we are going to get into unbiblical stuff. But like Mr. Clint went over a couple weeks ago, we have an advocate who stands on our behalf before God, and that is Christ. When we sin, when we disobey, there is someone to speak on our behalf. At the very moment you came to faith, it's as if you've gone from this absolute darkness into light. And, and I like the way John puts it. Like, he doesn't say that the, pat, that the darkness is gone. He says that the darkness is passing. Now, I don't know if any of you have, have ever had the pleasure of being out in the middle of nowhere at dawn. And, and I, don't mean, I don't mean, like, down in the valley. I mean, like, on the plains of Texas or Oklahoma or something. Just flatland where for hundreds of miles, there's nothing. And I've, I've gotten to enjoy, air quotes this, a, a few times where I had to work out west, Texas, and I'm coming back, and it's, I, I want to get up early, so I get up before dawn, and I'm driving home, 
and it is dark. You know, there's an old saying, it's always darkest just before the dawn. It's true. Like, I, I can't see anything beyond my headlights. And then all of a sudden, in an instant, there's this pink hue in the sky. And all of a sudden, it's not that there's nothing I can see outside my headlights. It's that I can see shadows, and I can see shapes. And as the sun gets higher and higher, I can see more and more shadows and shapes. I can't see colors yet, but I can see grays. And then the sun crests that horizon, and all of a sudden, there's just color everywhere. And I mean, it's not like it's noon or anything, but you can see. And this is the imagery that John is using. He's saying, when you come to Christ, there is that difference in a moment. And yeah, you're not at noon yet. Uh, it's, it's not the full light of the day, but the sun is coming up. The darkness is passing away as we pursue God's glory, as we are sanctified in our walk in Christ. And that doesn't mean we're perfect. And that's why I love this verse. It's not saying darkness is gone. It's not saying as soon as you come to faith, you are perfect. Can you imagine what a burden that would be? If we had to be perfect to keep our salvation? If at the very moment of salvation, it was expected that you have absolute perfection in everything you we do? Man, that would be an incredible burden. But John's saying, no. Guys, you're going to sin. You have an advocate. Guys, you come to faith. That is joyful. That's wonderful. The darkness is going to be passing away. And every day you're going to wake up and you're going to read your Bible and you're going to go, whoa, I wasn't obeying God this way. But I am now. And that darkness gets pushed back a little bit more because the light of Christ is shining through you. It's truly unfathomable, the level of love that God pours out on us. So that's the old yet new commandment. Let's move along to the second point in our outline, and that's the negative commandment in verse 9, which says, The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Now, according to verse 8, who's the light? This is another one of those, those easy ones, easy Sunday school answers. Yes, God's the light. Uh, specifically, he's talking about Jesus is the light, yes. Uh, and what does it mean to be in the darkness? What's that imagery he was using? So God is the light, darkness is sin. sin. Yes, exactly. Uh, so in a lot of ways, verse 9 is kind of the climax to what John's been working toward throughout 1 John so far. You know, John is writing to people he believes are Christians who are starting to pull away from each other as they pursue bad theology. And he's carefully laid out his case that has led to this statement. If you are a Christian, then you will understand that God is righteous and holy. If you are a Christian, then you will understand that you are sinful and in need of a Savior. If you are a Christian, then having come to Christ, you're going to obey his commandments. And here, if you are obeying God's commandments, then you will love one another. Because anyone who claims to be a Christian and at the same time hates their brother, that is a fellow believer in Christ, then they're only deceiving themselves. They are still lost in the darkness, and the light is not in them. And this is why I describe this as a negative commandment. It's not like I'm saying, oh, this is such a downer of a commandment. I'm not saying, oh, this commandment, is, it's got the blues. No, when I say negative, it's, it, I'm talking about this is uh, how it's the opposite commandment. You know, instead of saying, as a Christian, positively, you are going to do this. It's looking at the inverse of that statement. It's saying, hey, if you are not a Christian, then this is the thing that's going to define your lifestyle. Just as someone who isn't a Christian will demonstrate their lack of biblical self-sacrificing love for believers, we can take the opposite to be true. We can say, well, in that case, if you are a Christian, your life is going to be demonstrated by a pattern of self-sacrificial love for others. And if I'm, if I'm wearing that a little confusingly, don't worry. In the very next verse, John just lays it out. He says, hey, uh, if you're a believer, you will love other believers. The end. And, and this is part three of our outline. That it's the consequences of the commandment. If you're a true believer, you will love other believers. If you do not love other believers, you're not a believer. Like that, that is what John has just laid out. And these are the consequences. 
And this is the test of our faith that John has for us this morning. What you say in life, it has a lot of important meanings. Like, this is something, I, I, don't, I don't understand how I ended up this way. I blame my mom and dad. I'm like 100% of them both. I, what did I tell you is one of my favorite subjects in school? Math and what else? Lunch, exactly. Math and lunch. Okay, so, so math. I get that all from my dad. Okay, my, my dad was an engineer, extremely logical man. At the same time, I love English. I got that from my mom. Like, I don't know how these two things operate together, but they do. And one of my pet peeves is when people use the wrong word in the sentence. Uh, like, like, I had someone trying to tell me that uh, a movie was an allegory for something. I'm like, no. Uh, allegories have specific meanings. What you mean is it parallels it or that it drew inspiration from it. And, like, the, the guy could not get it. What you say has important meanings, guys. If you come here week after week after week saying you're a Christian, there is a very important meaning behind that statement. God is telling you that you are making a declaration when you say you are a Christian. And that declaration is that I believe in God, that he is perfect and I am not. As a Christian, I am declaring that I am going to follow God's commandments. And that number one commandment is that I'm going to love other people. That is what I declare when I say I'm a Christian. And if that is not what you mean when you say you're a Christian, you are not a Christian. And this isn't me being wishy-washy about the Bible. Like, it, when I say the, the number one commandment is to love, like, I, I'm not being, oh, love. Like, that's not it, guys. When Jesus himself was asked, what is the most important commandment of the Old Testament? His response was, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And that was a quote of the Old Testament. He didn't just come up with this off the top of his head. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6.5. And then, as a bonus, he said, and let me tell you the second most important commandment. And that is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And again, he wasn't just coming up with this off the top of his head. That was quoting Deuteronomy 19.18. And then Jesus gave the explanation of why these are the two most important commandments. He said, on these two commandments, to love God with everything you are and to love your neighbor as yourself, those two commandments, the entire Bible rests on them. The entire Bible depends on these two commandments. John goes from testing our views about Jesus, God's righteousness and our sinfulness, and our obedience to God's commands, into testing our love for one another because love for God and a love for one another is a central issue for every command that he's going to be getting into later on. You know, when the Bible says, do not gossip, do not slander, do not lie, the reason is because we should love someone so much that when we gossip about them, we go, ooh, hey, I'm hurting them. I'm hurting another believer. I'm tearing down the church of God, and that hurts me. The reason why we aren't to lie is because we should love the person we're lying about so much that we would rather face the consequences of our own actions than to lie about someone and have them be the one in troubles. If you are in Christ, you will obey God's command to love one another. Now, does that mean I gossiped? I mentioned something this morning about one of my children, maybe about wet pants. I'm not a Christian now. Is that what John's trying to get at here? Or, or hey, you know what? I said one lie about someone. I'm out. I'm out of the club. I can't, I can't be a Christian anymore. Is that what John's trying to go for right here? No. No, guys. Okay. Look, John's using, and I'm using because John's using, some very cut and dry language. Like he's saying, this is the case. If you don't love one another, then you're not a Christian. And he's doing it cut and dry, but he, his intent isn't that you can lose your salvation. His intent isn't that the first time you do it, like, you're not a Christian. Sorry, guys. Good. Maybe next time. Instead, remember that John believes that he is addressing believers who are at this very moment sinning by not loving one another. That's who John thinks he's writing to. 
And John is hoping to draw them back to a biblical view of love for one another. The proof of the test is not that you fail the very first time you don't meet the perfect standard. Having come to Christ, we are forgiven in Christ. And as we look through this and we're applying to our lives and we're going, hey, have I really submitted to God? Am I really Christian? The question isn't, did I lie one time? Did I gossip one time? Did I slander one time? Did I fail to love my siblings perfectly one time? The question is, what is the pattern of your lives? If I were to describe Avery, sorry, you're right here. If I were to describe Avery, would I say she is someone who has a love for the people in this church? Would I say that she's someone who has love for her sibling? Or would I say Avery's a bitter girl? I wouldn't say that, okay? I, I gotta say this, I wouldn't say this, okay? Like, but what would, what would my description of that person be? Would I describe them as someone who is loving, or would I describe them as someone who is not loving? What is the pattern of their life? And if as you read these tests and you go, you know what? The pattern of my life is that I don't obey God. The pattern of my life is when I see a verse in the Bible, and it says something like, women aren't supposed to be teachers, and I go, excuse you, that's dated. When I see a verse in the Bible and it says, hey, you know who's not going to inherit the kingdom of God? Not liars, not the effeminate, not homosexuals. And I go, whoa, that's dated. That was clearly intended just for that one culture of the time. And it's not meant for today. Like if that's my response to the word of God, to deny it every chance I get so that it aligns with my beliefs, I need to recognize that I'm not in Christ. In the same way, if my constant pattern of life is that I don't love the people around me, then I need to recognize that I am lying to myself if I say I'm a Christian because I'm still walking in the darkness. Right now, on Wednesday nights, Alejandro is going through the book of Daniel. And Daniel, he's one of those Old Testament greats, right? Like when you think about Daniel, like, wow, this guy, he stood before kings. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were thrown into a fire and they got to see the pre-incarnate Christ. That's incredible. Daniel saw these visions of the future that made him physically sick. Daniel's a great guy. Like, that's, that's an incredible life Daniel lived. And it's true. Daniel was a great prophet. But you know what the most amazing thing about Daniel is to me? It's not amazing to me that Daniel spoke before kings. Like, that's cool. It's not amazing to me that Daniel saw visions of the future. That's great. What's amazing to me is that Daniel, at your age, we are told he determined in his heart to not sin against God. That's what's most amazing to me about Daniel. He determined to not sin against God when he was your age. Like when you get to be my age, if Biden came up, I could easily have a conversation with him. I'm going to let that slide. I, I, I know. I'm not getting political. Okay. I, I could have a conversation with a powerful man. Like, that's not intimidating to me. Uh, a movie star came up. Okay. Uh, John MacArthur. I'd love to talk with John MacArthur. Like, I, I'm, I'm an old guy. I, this, this isn't something that concerns me. But when I was your age, to come before someone and say, I'm going to obey the Bible when you have the power of life and death over me, that's what's incredible. And that's what I would desire to see lived out in every one of your lives this morning. That you would determine your hearts to be obedient to God, to love one another sacrificially, to be active in the love that you have, looking for ways to include more people into your group. Because that's easy, right? Like, I, I, I grew up in Bedford. It was 30 minutes away from countryside. And so I, I went to a different school than everyone else. And I'd hear, like, everyone got together in the week, and, oh, we had this party, and like, oh, that would have been cool. And it's not, that, it's not like they were trying to exclude me. It's that these things happen naturally, right? You're at school together all day long. Hey, guys, let's go out, let's go out and grab dinner tonight. Yeah, sure. Okay, and you go and do. Like, th these are, that's okay. But if we were to be active in our love, we, we should be going, whoa, wait, you know what? Like, why don't we invite that Matt guy? 
Like, he's fun to hang out with on Sundays and Wednesdays. Let's, let's bring him along. I want us to be a group that is proactively looking for ways to make sure that we're not leaving people out. I mean, it's great that we have a pinball group and a volleyball group and a group that just likes to stand around and talk. That, that's awesome, because if I did pinball every week, I mean, my shoulder would just be ruined. So I, I like that I can, you know, barely move an arm and it counts as sports. Uh, <laughs> I know there's more to it, Reagan. Don't give that look. I'm saying when you're standing in a circle, I'm saying I'm glad there's diversity. God intends for there to be diversity in his church. The Bible specifically says that if we were all hands, nothing would get done. If we are all feet, we, nothing would be, get done. God has designed us to have a diversity of skills and talents. And the thing that brings him the most glory is when we use our individual abilities, the gifts that he gave us, to build up one another in the church. And that's what I want for our group, to use all these amazing diverse things we have and to recognize that we have a shared common love for Christ. So when I come, I go, you know what? Maybe I, I, I don't know anything about this person. Maybe we share nothing outside of Christ. But the fact we share Christ is enough for us to be best friends. Like, that's what I want to see in this group. To close out, I want everyone to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. The love chapter. Because we've talked about love, 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 love this morning, right? But what is biblical love? When I say we are to love biblically, what does that even mean? Well, what's going on in 1 Corinthians is that much like we see in 1 John, the church of Corinth has a love issue. People were failing to love God and not keeping his commands. And people were failing to love one another. And they were actually abusing the very spiritual gifts that God had given them to glorify themselves instead of glorify God. And in chapter 13, Paul gives some examples of what would just be phenomenal acts of love, right? He says, if, if I get my body to be burned, like, hey, I'm willing to die for this person. But if I don't have love, it's meaningless. Say, hey, if I can talk, not in just every language of man, but I can even speak in the tongues of angels, I even know angelic languages, but I don't have love, it's just a noisy symbol. And then he says, let me tell you what real love is. Because love is not just doing external things. Love is something that has to start in the heart. And in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, this is what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not puffed up. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That is what biblical love is. When you think about how you treat others in the youth group, do you think you can apply the biblical definition of love to your actions? Bless you. Are you jealous of what other people have? Or the relationships they have? Like, think about that. The Bible is saying that it is not jealous. That is what love is. Every time I look at someone and I go, I wanted to do that. I'm not loving them. I should be rejoicing that they got to do this cool thing. But instead, I'm being envious and not loving them. Do you look at others? You see them and, and I go, I remember what you did three years ago. Six o'clock, 13 minutes, 22 seconds. I'm not going to forget. And that was, a, that was a nice thing you did. You better believe I have a list as long as my leg of the things you've done against me. But guys, we do that sometimes, don't we? I go, hey, I'm not going to be friends with them because when we were third graders, they took my goldfish. I mean, that's, oh, man, when you're a third grade, that's pretty intense. But we do that. And yes, it becomes bigger now that you guys are bigger, okay? They took the spot you wanted. They made a snide comment. 
They, they were a little too sarcastic in, in what they said. They gossiped behind your back. They took the person you wanted to date. Look, there's lots of reasons we can have to hate each other. It's easy to find reasons to hate each other. But the Bible says true Christ-like love is we take those reasons and we throw them away. We're willing to forgive it. We're willing to endure it because they are fellow believers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we would be a youth group that is known for our Christ-like love for one another. I pray that when visitors come, they would see how, how much love we have for each other. That there aren't cliques forming because we don't want to be with other people, but there's just different groups hanging out, doing things that we have shared interests in. And they see the way people move about and have fun together as we, we get to grow our friendships and we get to worship you. Lord, I pray that we would never keep people on the outside, that we'd never make people feel unwelcomed here. For we do love you, Lord. We do claim to be your followers. We claim to love you, to recognize that you are holy and we are not. We profess as Christians that you saved us from our sins and that we live to be obedient to you and glorify your name. Father, I pray that as we obey you, we would obey your first and foremost commandment to love you with all our hearts, minds, and souls, and that we would love one another as the second grace commandment as ourselves. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.